0: You end up in a place that you don't know, that seems foreign and challenging and difficult. And like the comic said, asking for help is, is, is a vulnerable thing. But if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've been talking about what life looks like in the wilderness. And if you're new, we just want to encourage you that here at Cornerstone, we don't view vulnerability as weakness. We view it as strength. And we believe that it's only when we get vulnerable and we're honest that really we can experience true change. And so as a church, we practice vulnerability. None of us have it all together. In your bulletin, when you open it up, in the bottom right, it says Cornerstone isn't a gathering of perfect people. We're a gathering of broken people. And we embrace that. And so if you're a mess, welcome. We're a mess too. And we're in a season of wilderness. We're talking about what happens when you end up somewhere that maybe you didn't want to be. Maybe somewhere you didn't plan on being. Maybe somewhere that's uncomfortable for you. And we truly believe that that is the place where God does his best work. And we said wilderness is is this. We define wilderness this way. That wilderness is a place or a set of circumstances where people are subjected to forces that test them and often make them change, usually instigated without their input or active choosing. And if you can relate to that, you're in the right place today, and we're excited for what God's going to do. We're concluding this series today. It's been a three-week series, and if you want to dig deeper and learn more, we'd encourage you to go to prescottcornerstone.com wilderness. There's a, a ton of resources there that'll be able to help you in the weeks to come. But to catch everybody up, I wanted to just pull three threads that I feel like God's been weaving through this series. And they're at the top of your handout if you're following along. The first thread is this, that, that no one gets a pass on the wilderness. None of us do. None of us are immune from the wilderness. And, and we often tell ourselves, man, why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? I, I go to church, or I'm a good person, or I follow Jesus. None of those things give you a path through the wilderness. Everybody goes through the wilderness. And if you haven't gone through it yet, good for you. It's just coming for you sometime in the future. It's going to happen to all of us. Number two, the second common thread in this series I've noticed, is that God doesn't waste the wilderness. And that's the hope in the wilderness. You, you may not know what God is doing. You may not be where God you want where you want to be. You may feel like God isn't there. But the promise of Scripture, the promise we've seen again and again, is God doesn't waste this stuff. He's working in ways that we can't see. And then number three, the wilderness connects us. If you're new here, you may have walked in today and said, "Man, I don't, I don't have anything in common with these people here." Oh, contraire. You do, because they've been in the wilderness too. And we often connect around things that we feel like we're strong in, hobbies, passions, gifts, abilities. But what I've discovered in life is the strongest bonds are not made where we're strong. The strongest bonds are made where we're weak. The strongest bonds come through those seasons that have been difficult and hard. The strongest bonds come through those places of brokenness and pain. And the wilderness is the thing we all have in common. It connects us. And today we're going to look at one person's story and see how we're connected to him in that story. And through his story, we're going to see this central idea. It's our big idea this morning. That what you do with your wilderness determines what kind of dangerous person you become. You say, Scott, dangerous person? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple different ways you can define dangerous. There's the whole hide your kids, hide your wife kind of dangerous, you know? Like, ooh, I'm not going to let you, you know? There's certain people that I would not even let drive my grandmother somewhere. You know, they're just that kind of dangerous. And then there's another kind of dangerous that isn't bad, it's good. You know those dangerous people that you don't get in between them and where they're going? Maybe they're the kind of people that our enemy Satan says they're dangerous to him they're the kind of people who've been through something and it's changed them in a good way. And what we do with our wilderness determines which kind of dangerous person we're going to be. And As I said, we're going to learn this from a person's story and that person is Elijah and his story is recorded in the book of 1 Kings beginning in chapter 17. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up or turn it on. 1 Kings is in the Old Testament. It's after 2 Samuel And ironically, it's before 2 Kings. And and Elijah's story takes a long time to tell, and it's a a massive story. And you might think, are we going to read all those verses? No, we're not going to read all those verses today. I'd encourage you to go home and read them because there's some great stuff there. But we're going to look at some key moments that happen in these three chapters in Elijah's story. And through those passages, we're going to learn four lessons, both from Elijah's experience in the wilderness but also from his experience on on a mountaintop because those are both part of our stories too. And the first lesson we learn is this, that the wilderness invites us into a new way of relating to God. When you go through the wilderness, what what happens is God begins to invite you into a new way of relating to him. And we see this powerfully in Elijah's story. So in 1 Kings 17, verse one, we read, now Elijah the Tishbite, of tishba and gilead said to ahab as the lord the god of israel lives before whom i stand neither shall do nor rain these years come except by my word and the word of the lord came to elijah and said depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of cherith which is east of the jordan you shall drink from the brook and i've commanded the ravens to feed you there so he went, that's Elijah, and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, since most of us aren't experts on Israeli geography, let me kind of locate us in this story. So, so Elijah's born in this area known as Gilead over here in the city of Tishba. And so he, he lives there, he grows up there, and God says, I want you to go tell Ahab that a drought is coming. And so Ahab's uh, throne, his palace is here in Samaria. So he goes from Gilead to Samaria. He tells that great report to, uh, to the king. And then God knows the king's not going to be happy with Elijah. So he then sends Elijah back across the Jordan River to this ravine where the Cherith Brook is, where he's going to take care of him. And uh, we don't know from 1 Kings 17 how long the drought lasts, but we do know from the New Testament, from a reference to it, that James, the brother of Jesus, makes james says and he that's elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth three years likely in the wilderness elijah does some other things before the drought ends and so we don't know specifically how long he was in this wilderness by this ravine with this brook within that you know 36, 42-month period, but we, we think it was the bulk of it. So it was at least months, maybe years. And he's there, and there's a drought, and he's praying that the brook will stay flowing so he can stay drinking, and he prays that the ravens will keep coming so he can keep eating. But it's a pretty vulnerable place to be when you're not in charge of your water and you're not in charge of your food. And it's often in that vulnerability that we begin a new way of relating to God. I find it so funny because the, 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 the book of Job in the Bible talks about ravens. And it says that ravens neglect their own. So you have this bird that isn't even good at taking care of its own babies, and yet Elijah's banking everything on them. And this is really hard for me because I hate ravens. And not only do I always think of that dark Edgar Allan Poe poem whenever I hear the word ravens, you know, forevermore, but ravens always get in my garbage at my house. And if there's at all a crack in my garbage, I come out on Monday afternoon coming home from work and my garbage is just all over my cul-de-sac. So I hate these birds. Um, and, and, and I don't know what Elijah thought of them, but I have to believe that over those months and years... He began to step into a new way of relating to God because he was so vulnerable and dependent on God. And I think that's hard for us. As the comic said, we don't like being vulnerable because vulnerability demands that we relate to God in a new way. Let me illustrate this. How many of you are fans of Costco? Anybody fans of Costco in the house? Yeah, you guys are all excited now. You're at Costco. Yes, awesome, You know? Well, Americans, we love Costco. I mean, Costco is super popular, um, and uh, it became even more popular when Sam's closed in Prescott Valley, and so everybody has one place to go to do all their shopping. I, I count it like a, a miracle if I can go to Costco and not see any of you while I'm there. It's just, it never happens. Uh, it's like, I always see somebody. And, and we love Costco for a lot of reasons. Like, we love Costco because we can buy things in bulk. I mean, who doesn't need three years of cheese puffs in your pantry? We love Costco because of the free samples. Um, we love Costco, because the food at the end hasn't gone up in price in like forty years; it's still dirt cheap. The things I don't like about Costco, though, are that they always hide my favorite foods, and so like I'm like searching through the aisles, praying they haven't discontinued it. Um, I uh, I also don't like Costco on Sundays because it's just so crowded, you know. And um, and yet so often I end up there on Sundays. But I was preparing for this message, I took a Twitter break to just kind of check out for a second, and I stumbled on a tweet. Before I get there, I think I have some props from Costco here. I just figured, you know, you might need something visual to kind of look at. So uh, I sent my wife there yesterday, and um, she brought home four and a half pounds of chocolate chips. I mean, because who doesn't need 4,000 cookies? And then um, I, was, I was doing really good with this, uh, you know, one and a half pound bag of popcorn until last night, and I broke into my prop. Um, so... <laughs> But when you think about Costco, I want you to think about this for a second, and then I want you to listen to the words from Pastor Rich Fiotis, who says, Jesus calls us to pray for daily bread, but we'd rather have a Costco relationship with God. He says, we'd rather have stuff in bulk so as to not have to come back to God so often, but we cannot live without daily dependence. Now, I'm not anti-Costco. I was there yesterday. (laughs) But the way that we relate to God can't be Costco. And there's a lot of us that go to God the way we go to Costco. We, we buy our stuff in bulk, we're set for three to four weeks, and then we don't come back. The average American churchgoer attends church 1.6 to 1.8 times a month. And the stats are even worse about regular Bible reading and prayer. And I'll be honest with you. I, I, I spent yesterday catching up on my Bible reading plan because I was a week behind. It took a long time. And Leviticus is really long. But having been in the wilderness myself, I will tell you that what the wilderness does is it forces you out of self-sufficiency and into dependence on God. If you've been in the wilderness, you begin to realize that you can't relate to God like Hosco. You can't check in with God every two or three weeks and then think that will last you another two or three weeks. When you're in the wilderness, you may not be able to go an hour without praying. You may not be able to go half a day without opening your Bible. You may have to talk to God and allow him to get you through the day minute by minute. And you might say, man, Scott, I hate the wilderness. Nothing good can come from that. And that's where you're wrong. Because what the wilderness can do is it can shift you from relating to God like Costco to looking to him for your daily bread. This is why the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread, not our Costco bread. Because if we related to God for Costco bread, we would buy four loaves and not need to see him for four weeks. But God wants us to relate to him like Elijah did the ravens in the, in the brook where morning and evening he knew that if God did not send bread, he wasn't going to eat. And so many of us would say that I'm a follower of Jesus. But if truth be told, we're far more reliant on ourselves than we are Jesus. And when we end up in the wilderness, God begins to invite us to a new way of relating to him. Not because we can Because we can't get through the wilderness without that. And if you've been trying to to get by with God like you get by with Costco, you may be able to sustain that for a while until you hit the wilderness. And then you're going to need a new way of relating to God. Number two lesson from Elijah is that the wilderness builds bold faith. The wilderness builds bold faith. I'm sure you know people like I know people who you admire because of the faith they have, because of the trust they have. And you go, man, I wish I had bold, crazy faith like that. I wish I I believed God that strongly and that passionately. Well, if you know somebody like that, let me tell you, behind that bold faith is an adventure of trust and surrender. They didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden they had bold faith. It wasn't like Christmas morning and it was there underneath the tree. That bold faith is the outcome of something. And that something is an adventure of trust and surrender. That happens in Elijah's life. He's at this this ravine for months or years with God feeding him. And then God tells him to go find a widow up in the north and allow that widow to feed him. And I don't mean to be crass here, but it's not a normal rational command. Because if there's a famine because there's a drought... The last person who's going to have food in the ancient Near Eastern culture where women can't own property is a widow. And yet what happens is God works and the oil and flour she has does not run out as long as Elijah's there. Her son dies. And for the very first time in scripture, God uses someone, Elijah, to raise that child from the dead. So after going through all of that, Chapter 18 opens, and Elijah says, Hey, King Ahab, come meet me on Mount Carmel. Not Caramel, for those of you that are still thinking about Costco, Carmel, C A R M E L. And he says, Ahab, hey, bring all of your prophets to your false gods with you. And so Ahab shows up with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets, or sorry, prophets of Ashtaroth, 850 false priests and prophets, and they have a showdown on this mountain. The the false god prophets pray to their false gods and ask that god or those gods to rain down fire from heaven and nothing happens. Elijah's kind of going, hey, is he going to come? Can he hear you? Is he going to the bathroom? That's actually in the Bible, by the way. Um, And then after a while, Elijah goes, okay, you've had enough. And he begins speaking in verse 30. He says, come near to me to all the people. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And he took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar to the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and he laid it over the wood and he said fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. For those of you boy scouts in the room this is not how you build a fire. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and I have done all of these things according to your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And all the people saw it. They fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now you may be sitting here saying, if I saw fire from heaven, I'd have bold faith. If I was there and I saw God do that, I would have bold faith. Here's the thing. Elijah had bold faith that the fire would fall. He didn't have bold faith because the fire fell. And before you admire him too much for that quality, think about what got him there. It was the wilderness with the ravens and the brook. It was the widow's flower and oil that didn't run out. It was the young boy who was raised from the dead. That's why he trusted God like that, because he had seen God like that. And that kind of trust, friends, it isn't built overnight, and it's not built in the light. It's not built in the places where we are comfortable. It is not built in the places where we are self-sufficient. It is not built in the places that are easy. It is built in the places that we don't want to be and that we don't like going and we pray to God, get me out of here now. And so the next time you see somebody and you go, man, I admire their faith. I want their faith. Just beware that if God is going to build that faith in you, He's going to take you through the wilderness on the way. And if you're in the wilderness now, allow God to build that faith in you now for what is going to come later. This is why in this series we've said again and again that we're trying to take a different perspective on the wilderness because our natural default is to view these seasons as weakness and to be avoided. And this is why John Mark Comer says the wilderness isn't the place of weakness. It's the place of strength. And so you may not feel strong when you're in the wilderness. You may not feel strong when you're vulnerable. You may not feel strong when you're going through adversity. But God is building strength in you if you will turn to and depend on him. And that's why I said... What we do with our wilderness will determine what kind of dangerous person you become because Elijah is a dangerous person to Ahab and Jezebel because of who he became in the wilderness. And you can become a dangerous person as well if God can do the same thing in you in the wilderness he did in them. But Elijah's story is far from over. Number three, the wilderness changes our pace. So this this is like a high moment in the Old Testament. This is like the moment that everybody knows about, the, the showdown on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. But most of us don't keep reading for what comes after. 1 Kings 19, it says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. That's what happened after the fire fell. And Jezebel, and this is one of the reasons why none of you have named your daughters Jezebel, Sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Translation, he's about to lose his head. So the scripture is very blunt and profound. Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. And he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him again, and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. He had just watched fire fall down from heaven. He'd watched God show up in the most miraculous way. And in about this much scripture, he went from being on the mountaintop and in the miracle to in the wilderness asking God to kill him. This is why I began by saying that none of us are immune from the wilderness. Because we say, well, I'm a, I'm a good person, I go to church, I, I give to the church, I serve... I should be immune from suicidal thoughts. No. I should be immune from depression and anxiety. No. I should be immune from these dark experiences of wilderness and pain. No. Because if Elijah can forget, we can too. If Elijah can struggle, we can't do. Elijah can find himself there saying, God, just take me, I'm done. We can't do. And this is why it is so important for me to say this, and please do not miss this. There is a myth that is alive and well in the world, and especially the church today, that the longer you follow Jesus and the more devout you are, the more immune you are. And that's not true. In the middle of the Bible, the book of Psalms is is filled with verses that we never read. Like Psalm 31, 9, where David says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, and my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. what the wilderness does is it begins to expose these struggles and feelings and experiences in our lives. And the scriptures were given to us, not only to point us to the hope we have in Jesus Christ and the gospel, but to remind us that we aren't alone. That's why in James five, the brother of Jesus says, Elijah was as human as we are. These people who we hold up as the heroes of the faith, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, they're not better than you. They're the same as you. They're just as broken. They've battled the same dark days. And when you end up in the wilderness, you need to know that you're not alone. And you need to know that God may be leading you there to renew you, to do a work in you that heals and renews and restores. But how it happens is not going to be the life you were living before. It will not be the go, go, go life. It will not be the crazy, frenetic pace life. It's not lost on me that we live in a culture with the highest numbers of mental health issues, while at the same time, we're living at the fastest pace we've ever lived before, with more information and more knowledge at our fingertips than ever before. And what happens to Elijah? What does God do? He says, Take a nap eat take another nap eat you go, Scott that's not really profound but what happens when we're in the wilderness what happens when we're trying to do it in our own power and strength we think we can get by without eating and sleeping what happens every night when you go to bed all those things come to mind that you want to control that aren't the way you want them to be and to go to sleep what do you have to do trust God. That's why I love what Larry Osborne says, trust God and take a nap. <laughs> it's not trite because when I've been in my seasons of greatest anxiety and overwhelm and panic, the last thing I could do is sleep because to go to sleep would mean that I'm trusting God to control stuff while I'm out. Maybe your next step after today is to go home and take a nap. Even if you're not a nap person. Because you're admitting that you're a human and you can't do this on your own and you're going to trust God to do it. And Again, Elijah's story is almost done, but it's not done yet. The wilderness changes our perspective. So Elijah gets up, he goes 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, same place that that Moses received the Ten Commandments. And in verse 13 we read, And behold, there came a voice to Elijah and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, God. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left. And they seek to take my life and to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness, Damascus. When you arrive you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This wilderness ends in a shocking We all want the wilderness experience that Elijah had the first time. We don't want three years eating by a brook, fed by ravens, and drinking from a brook. But we want what comes after that. We want Mount Carmel. We want God to rain down fire from heaven, kick everybody's butt, and see him in powerful ways. We want the mountaintop and the victory. We don't want the second wilderness where God says to Elijah, You can go home, but life as you know it is over. Sometimes wilderness leads to victory on the mountain, and sometimes it leads to a life-changing transition. Because what God says to Elijah is, anoint this guy, anoint this guy, and appoint your successor, because I'm going to take you home. I'm trying to give you the fine print of the wilderness today. And not set you up for disappointment. Because there's not one wilderness exit strategy. There's at least two. And your wilderness may not end where you think it will. And that may be the hardest part. It may not end with you being where you thought you would be on the other side. And Elijah has to come to terms with that. And we do too. But a really important question to ask in that moment if you're struggling is what if what's after your wilderness is not about you? Both services this morning, when I got into this section of the message, the room got heavy. I think it's because some of us are experiencing the other side of wilderness that hasn't gone the way we thought. And for many of us, that's because it's not going for us the way we thought. And maybe the challenge today is for your vision for your life and your vision for your wilderness to become bigger than you. I'm not going to be the last pastor of Cornerstone Church, likely. Somebody's going to be here after me. Somebody was here before me. the kingdom of God's been alive for a lot longer than any of us have been alive and it probably will be alive after we are too I think so what if your wilderness isn't about you what if God's doing something in your wilderness that's bigger than you, you know Elijah had some great miracles, raise the dead fire from heaven, guess what Elisha, his successor, did twice as many miracles as he what if Elijah's best miracle was raising up Elisha What if the work of your wilderness is not your life, but whose life you touch, who lives on after you? Can your ego handle that? Can my ego handle that? And this is what's so great about Elijah's story. He died 2,700 years ago. And guess what? He's still impacting lives today. I'm not saying we're going to be around for 2,700 years after we're gone. But what if God used your story like that? What if God worked through you like that? For you to embrace a view like that would require you to see the world like The Incredibles. It's a great movie, by the way. The sequel's pretty good, too. But in The Incredibles, there's this scene where they all need new costumes. And so they call this little woman named Edna. And Edna is going to make them new costumes. But before she does, Edna has a rule. If you remember the rule, yes. No capes. <laughs> Edna shows a highlight of all the superheroes who've died from unfortunate cape accidents. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think a lot of us go through life like we have a cape on. Like we're superheroes. Like we can do it all on our own. Like we don't need God and we don't need people. But friends, I don't have a cape on. And you 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 don't have a cape on. This is a cape-free church. And what God's chewing in the wilderness is he's trying to draw you closer to him. And he's trying to draw you closer to other people so that he can do through you more than you can imagine. And somebody who's been helping me to see that, I'm going to invite on stage right now. So this is Elizabeth George. Why don't you welcome her to the stage? Hello. I'm get some fun chairs over here. Thanks, Steve. So um, Elizabeth, I met Elizabeth a little over a year ago. She had just moved to Prescott. She was a new counselor in the area, and she was, she'd been a fr- friend of mine He said he should meet me, and I was very grateful. Um, and I have a great counselor, but I've told you that if my counselor ever, ever leaves, I know my new, my new counselor, um, and you were great this, this, this winter because I was... I was thinking about giving a message or a series of messages about mental health and anxiety. It was this series, but I didn't know, I didn't really know how to get started. And you gave me the idea of wilderness. So you're welcome. It's Elizabeth. Um, But in that meeting, we just had a great conversation. I took so many notes. and, And one of the things that I found so helpful, and it was reiterated from our first meeting, is that you really believe that the work you're doing is sacred work. And, and you're praying that God does work on the other side of the process of somebody meeting with you. What What is that, that heart passion that got you into this?
1: Um, well, based on my own experience and my own wilderness, I believe that the most healing thing is the transforming love of God. Make sure your microphone is, is on. on. Try again. Can you guys hear me?
0: No. Okay. Hold on. There we go. Hi. There we go. Okay.
1: okay. <laughs> so, um... What made me passionate about this is the fact of my own wilderness experience and the way God met me there. And what I believe is that the most healing thing is coming in contact with the transforming love of God. And through our life, he does it in new and different ways. Um, And he is continually disrupting us to take us to a place where we know his love in the places where we're wounded or the places where we haven't let them in.
0: And that's not only happening in the lives of your your you know clients, that, that, that's what happened in your life that got you into this.
1: Absolutely. Um, when I started seminary in 1998, pretty soon after, it felt like my world fell apart. I Things were going on in relationships with friends. My ministry relationships were falling apart and even a dating relationship. And I felt completely hopeless and unlovable And a friend really encouraged me to get into counseling. And when I went that first time um, and I just shared what I was going through with my therapist, he said, What's it like that God has called you into the wilderness to speak tenderly to you? That he wants to speak tenderly to you. And that changed everything, it changed my perspective of God and what I was going through.
0: Well, when we were talking um, one of those first times, um, you know, I, I was in some ways kind of trying to figure out how you saw the world. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I encounter is that there are some people who see an incompatibility in your world between faith and psychology. Mm-hmm. And yet you shared with me some of the ways that you bring those together and use them both to help people and you make sense of that. How does that work out for you?
1: Um, well, I think... First of all, psychology is sort of the science of how we see ourselves and how we interact with the world. And I I do think there are some good psychology techniques out there. Um, But for me, uh, it can't be apart from God's love. And I had a mentor um, share with me there are two perspectives to integrating faith and psychology. The first is where the gospel is the soil, and you add psychology on top of that. So the soil is the love of christ for you and your identity in him and psychology goes on top of that or it can be psychology is your soil and you have the gospel on top of it and for me based on my experience there's no other way to do it than with the gospel as soil
0: and within that we were talking that day and one of the comments you made that i thought was just you said it so succinctly you said emotions are not curses they're gifts Exactly. Unpack that. because I think for a lot of us in this room, we don't view the emotions we're facing as gifts. We think that they're terrible. Why did God give me this emotion? Um, how do you see that differently?
1: Well, I think um, absolutely they're gifts. We were created to live in a perfect world and because of the fall, we don't. Um, and whenever we feel sadness or hurt or shame, we either think what's wrong with me or what's wrong with God. Um, but the reality is, the emotions show us that there's just something wrong and they're actually invitations to lean on God.
0: So, so when I feel shame, mm-hmm. uh, which is not that uncommon of an occurrence, um, I need to ask myself not what is wrong with me, mm-hmm. but what is, what is this feeling telling me yeah. like to ask questions about our emotions? Is that, is that a more helpful posture?
1: Exactly. Uh, what's going on that I'm feeling this way, but also God, what do you want me to know here? Um, what do you want me to see here?
0: So beginning, not only ask that question of myself, but also ask that question mm-hmm. of God. Now, you've been really great, and you've been following along with the series. Mm-hmm. You're part of another church in the area, a great church in yeah. the area, but you've been following along. What has stuck out to you as you've watched these messages? Oh, and so many things. What's what, something that has been meaningful for you as, as somebody who does the work that you do?
1: Um, so many things. Um, I think, well, from this sermon today, that make, going through the wilderness makes you a dangerous person. In one of two ways. And the reality is when you learn to depend on God, you can be threatening definitely to the enemy, but also to other people. Because you speak a truth that also invites them into the wilderness. Um, Another thing that really sticks out is you can't do this journey alone. And I know, for instance, when I'm counseling myself, when my voices are analyzing myself, I need to reach out to someone to talk about it. Um, And I need support in those places as well.
0: So not everybody in here is in counseling or will go to counseling. No, they won't end up in your office. But, but you have a captive audience right now. So what would you want to say to them? Ask somebody who does the work that you do as they're navigating through this season.
1: Um, God wants to speak tenderly to you. Um, you are here. And I think you said this in the first sermon. Um, you're here because you're special. Um, Got you're special to God, um, and he wants to speak tenderly to you. And in Hosea 2.16, he says, I want you to know me as your husband. And so he wants intimacy with us. And so if you find yourself in the wilderness, it's because he loves you and he wants you to know him on a more intimate
0: level. Well, I'm really grateful that you're on our list of referral counselors. I'm, I'm grateful for the stories I've heard, people who are even sitting in this room right now who you've walked through really tough stuff with, and thanks for the investment you're making in our community. So, Thank you. I'm grateful for you. Let's give a round of applause. As this series draws to a close today, I want to just direct you to some next steps this morning that I think you can take to kind of speak to this today, but also the whole series and the first one is this. I just want to challenge and encourage you to intentionally and consistently draw near to God. And that, that, that might not be your natural reaction or where you would start. It might be that you feel angry or God, at God or distant from God. But as we've said, this series is an invitation to draw near to God. And, um, and as somebody who this is not theory for, this is real life. I spent some time with somebody last month and he said something that I just can't get out of my head. He shared this quote from Augustine and he said, God, you are nearer to me than I am to myself. Is it possible that in the wilderness, God is actually closer to you than you are to yourself? And wilderness is awakening you to the possibility of connecting with him in a place like that intentionally and consistently draw near to God. Number two, intentionally and consistently seek community with other people. To take the wilderness a different direction in the wilderness, if you see a pack of animals, watch for the animal that falls behind. That's the animal that's not a dangerous animal. That's the animal that's in danger of a dangerous animal. And wilderness has the potential to isolate us. And the opportunity is not to get isolated. The opportunity is to connect with other people in a deeper way. You have no idea how many people are struggling in similar ways than you are, and they're feeling scared of sharing. And by you going first and sharing about your own struggle, you're giving them the gift of going second and sharing their struggle. It feels like it's weakness to be vulnerable, but friends, it's strength. And it's what connects us together. Number three, invite God to set your pace and your perspective while you're in the wilderness. Instead of the pace that you brought in or the perspective you brought in, ask God to give you a new pace and a new perspective. While you you might think that I'm an expert on all this stuff, I'm learning just like you. I don't have all the answers. I don't understand God in all of his ways. But one thing I have discovered is God is never in a hurry. And if there's one word that describes our pace in life, is it's hurried. Will you allow God to slow you down so that you can hear him and draw near to him and see what he sees while you're in the wilderness? And then number four, look for God to use your wilderness story. god is not done and he is not going to waste what you're going through and if he can take elijah a man just like us and use his story 2700 years later will you allow him to use yours too will you allow him to use yours too let's pray
1: thank you for listening to the audio from cornerstone church in prescott arizona for more information visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.